all day. This process is our innate condition, dependent origination. Aware, 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 aware. Being aware is beyond compare. Aware, aware. Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. Christmas and Buddhism. Not your average podcast discussion topic. This episode is different. I thought it might have way more to do with Christmas at first, but our conversation took a different direction. Or really, I'm lying. I didn't expect it to be much about Christmas at all, but I went with it anyway. See, I've learned one pretty cool thing about having a podcast with actual listeners. It gives you an excuse to talk to people you'd otherwise have no business calling up. I've sent out requests to a bunch of people who probably have only a vague connection to the holidays, just because I was curious if I could talk to them. Some turned me down. Some said maybe next year, and a few have said sure. Brad Warner was one of those. Some others I'm holding on to for a little bit because i got to keep the surprises coming. I've admired Brad Warner's writing for years. He's technically a Zen master, but he thinks that title's silly, so I'll just say that he's written a bunch of books about Zen, and he's got a new one coming out called Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. So I kind of shouldered my way into his publicist list of people to talk to. Brad's just a cool guy in general. He travels all over the world running meditation retreats and giving talks. He's also in a punk band from Ohio, used to work for a Japanese monster movie production company, and in addition to his nine books on Zen, I think that's right, he wrote a couple of novels, one called Gil Women of the Prehistoric Planet. He's awesome. My kind of guy. But why talk to a Zen guy on a Christmas show? I actually do think there's a good reason. The main one is this, and it's why I'm putting this show out last this season. The holidays can be a big downer. Tons of folk hate them, or they at least resent them. They're filled with stress and having to hang out with people you may work really hard to avoid the rest of the year, or you feel super guilty about not hanging out with those people. You're reminded about how much cash you don't have for gifts. You remember too late all the people you forgot to buy gifts for. You stress over the greeting card list, or you feel guilty for not sending cards. Or you just have a sinking suspicion that the rest of the world is happy and jolly while you feel like crap. And even for those people who like the holidays, this time right after can feel like a bad hangover. And I know a bunch of people who, like me, get really down after all the excitement. Remember Mitchell Kesson, who made the documentary Jingle Bell Rocks, all about Christmas music collectors? Talked to him a couple years ago. He told me that he actually gets super depressed every year in January. And a lot of people who like the show tell me that same thing. It's not just that you gotta wait another year until presents, but part of the fun of Christmas is that everyone's kinda sharing the same magic, even if it's just lights and decorations and music in the background. But then January hits. It's cold, it's dark, and everyone's going back to doing their own thing. Either way, the holidays are a super emotional time, but a lot of those emotions are ones you'd probably be better just leaving behind. Doing that's crazy hard, though. But finding a way to get perspective on all the ups and downs is one thing that I get from Brad's writing. Maybe not specifically about the holidays, but I've learned a ton from him and Zen in general about how to cope. So I know you may be worried, no, this is not going to be a show where I try to convince all of you to start doing meditation or to get super mystical or anything like that. You know, but if you ever have thought about it, maybe you can start a late New Year's resolution. But no, even if you don't want to do that, Brad's books are just generally really engaging about how to live with a Zen mindset. 
but that doesn't mean anything weird. He's one of the most down-to-earth and straightforward writers about this stuff that I've ever encountered. And I read a lot because I was always attracted to Buddhist ideas, even when I didn't really understand them. The reason why means i got to get just a touch personal. So I haven't kept it a secret on this show that I'm not a Christian. That's not why I'm fascinated with Christmas. Honestly, I'm not much of anything when it comes to religion. My parents and grandparents were Unitarian Universalists, which for all intents and purposes means they were hippies. When it started back in Ralph Waldo Emerson's day, Unitarianism was a branch of Christianity that thought the Trinity was just too unwieldy of a theological concept. But otherwise, they were the same Bible-toting folk as everyone else. Over time, though, Unitarian churches became a place where old liberals with a bent towards vague spirituality spent their Sunday mornings. You don't have to believe anything in particular to be a Unitarian, and I bet you couldn't get any two of them to agree on what they think. So that means when I was a kid and had questions about God, my parents would just ask me what I thought. Questions in response to questions. That had the unforeseen consequence of turning me into a philosophy major when I hit college, accompanied with all the unstable economic situations that go with it. But it also meant eventually that I realized I didn't really believe anything. And one reason I love Christmas so much is that it's the one time of the year that I wasn't just encouraged to believe in magic, but the rest of the world seemed to really confirm that belief. It was wondrous. But the rest of the time, I started to realize that I didn't know how to handle not believing anything. Which sounds kind of strange, but Buddhism and Zen in particular suggested that there was a way to look at the world where not believing in something wasn't just empty, but was actually full. And Brad's one of the few writers I found who could put that feeling into words in a way that wasn't wrapped up in a bunch of what I felt like was silly mysticism. Anyway, since I know a lot of people get down at this time of the year and tell me so, and since Brad's stuff has really made me feel good over the years, I thought I'd share. It's a little Happy New Year's present. I hope you find something interesting. I've read that, and I'm, I'm sure in the history somewhere, that there are Buddhist holidays. Are you aware of any, or are there any that you actually pay attention to? Yeah, the, uh, not really. Uh, I lived in Japan for 11 years, which if you've read my books, you probably know that already, but maybe your listeners don't. Mm -hmm. And in, in Japan, all of the holidays are secular. So the only one that ever springs to mind right away is Umi no Hi, which is a sea day, you know, ocean day. And they're they're all they're all things like that, and I've forgotten what the rest of them are. And I suppose that's something that was imposed upon them when the Americans uh, wrote a constitution for them after World War II. <laughs> um, so, so there's no there are no religious holidays in Japan, religious public holidays. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the Buddhist world. Uh, I mean, China is, of course you know, the uh, communists, so they probably don't have it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if the, the Koreans are probably similar to Japan in the secularization of everything. So, um, so unless there are some in Thailand or Burma or places like that, I, I don't know about them. It's, they, and, and the Japanese are, they really get into Western, specifically American holidays. They love Christmas. You know, mm -hmm. Christmas is, is, is crazy in Japan. There's, it's not a public holiday or anything, but, uh, but they, and there's very few Christians over there, but they love Christmas. There is uh, Rohatsu, which is the supposed day of Buddha's enlightenment, which is celebrated on December the 8th. Um, but that tends to be something that uh, temples will have a seshin, like a long, uh, a week-long meditation thing uh, culminating on December the 8th. And that's that's about it. Nobody gives presents or 
Japan's cards or mm-hmm. anything like that. So yeah, I, I don't really know about any any Buddhist holidays, unfortunately. And that makes sense, though. I mean, <laughs> honestly, I feel like that there's not necessarily one magic day <laughs> during yeah, the year. Yeah, yeah. It's my my teacher actually was against any of those magic day things. He didn't even like rohatsu. You know, he thought he thought it was silly when some of the group he had wanted to do rohatsu celebrations because he's just like it's just it's just a day like any other day we just do what we do every day and that was his attitude towards that if you look up online and i was doing some research that a lot of people just i don't know if they're just websites or or sort of a standard thing but they'll call december 8th bodhi day and i don't know if that's yeah bodhi day is is uh is a common name to to call it i'm not sure if rohatsu might just refer to the the days preceding bodhi day but bodhi is uh enlightenment it's that's it's the word that's usually translated into english as enlightenment and it's the day that that he supposedly had his his big experience it's actually really close to saint nicholas's day is it? Um, I didn't know what's in it. Yeah, which okay. is the ninth. Oh, okay. The ninth, and then, but also, then Krampus is. I'm, I'm sure you know Krampus, the Christmas demon who's starting to show up all over the place. Yeah, I've heard about it. I don't know too much. He would Saint Nick would give out the presents, and Krampus would, you know, threaten the bad kids with the whip. Who's the thing that the the Dutch uh, get into? I think it's around Christmas time. It's like Black Peat or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Is that, is that a is that something? That's related? a Christmas thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it started in the 1800s. There were a few books that got really popular in the Netherlands about how Saint Nicholas would travel with this small Moorish servant okay. uh, named Swarte Piet. And oh, so I did get it, I get did get it right about Black Peat. I just kind yeah. of pulled Peat out of my. Uh, out of the air. I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, and so um, he would be his helper and he would be the one who climbs down the chimney to oh. deliver presents. So hence, hence why he's black. Yeah, yeah. And the trick with it now, though, is that um, he's coming under a whole lot of pressure because it's very possible that yeah. the original stories were a slave. And the even more troubling thing for a lot of people nowadays is that there are still tons of Black Pete parades and celebrations yeah. where you know, all the white Dutch people go out and dance around in blackface. Well, and so yeah. it's not a good look <laughs> for a lot of people, but they don't have the same history of blackface that. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I always thought it, it represented the soot, uh, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, I, I've got a couple of, no, I've got one book published in Dutch and uh, I go to the Netherlands uh, fairly frequently and give talks and things. And so I, I, I I've run across it. I've never, I've never been there around Christmas time, but I've seen the sub, you know, some of the the stuff that's, you know, might still be around at other times of the year, and gone. Oh, what's that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's a fun one. Whenever I talk about him, um, there's always, always lots of fun outrage discussions. Yeah, that happen <laughs> yeah. after that. So I'm from both sides. I also get hate mail during the year from people from the Netherlands who are like, "You don't understand." <laughs> Stop well, talking yeah. about this criticism, which I get. I mean, some of these things. You, of course, as you know, the internet is full of outrage, and there's there's people who whose only reason to go on online is to be outraged. So you know, they're yeah. just looking for something to be outraged about. <laughs> One thing I know that my personal stuff helps is with all the usual stress of the holidays. That um, sitting helps just in the sort of basic psychological way that it, it, you know, all the calm that it can bring and probably lowers my blood pressure a little bit too. Maybe. But I was wondering if you had ever 
had any students or, or had talked about people who lean on it during the holidays? Uh, lean on Zazen during the holidays? Well, yeah, I, I can't think of specifically that, but I, I feel like the, the practice that I've done and, you know, it's, it's a Zazen practice, it's Zen Buddhist style of meditation uh, has been useful for all sorts of times of stress. And, and every holiday season, I, I write a couple of blog pieces or do a couple of things on my, on my uh, YouTube page where, you know, I just give whatever advice I, I have because it's, it's sort of, it, it isn't really a, a magic solution of any sort, but it does kind of give you a bit of uh, perspective, I suppose, and the most recent thing that I put up was just sort of a little, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I, I'm a bit of an agnostic when it comes to the Buddhist teachings around karma and rebirth, you know, aka reincarnation. Mm-hmm. But some of them I find useful. And the, the article that I put up on my blog recently was that I, I sometimes pretend to believe them. And one, one of the teachings that comes along in that is that our, the families that we find ourselves part of are not just a matter of random chance or or something that was ordained by God or something like that. In the in the Buddhist scheme of thing things, there there is a certain continuity of uh, it's it's sort of like. A, if you think of a, a, what a person is, it's very complicated to talk about what a person is in, in Buddhist terms because it's nothing like what most religions think. There's no idea of a soul or anything. So there's this idea that that there's a kind of ocean, you know, that's a metaphor that's often used of, of mm-hmm. being or whatever it is. And the waves on top of that ocean are are the people. So the, the, the people sort of spring out of that ocean as a wave that's that's really just a manifestation of something much larger that's going on beneath the surface but we tend to get attached to the superficial part of it and and those waves when they when they come up and they go back it's it's still that same patch of water you know and it takes a long time for a particular patch of water to to ever dissipate and and go away which means in practical terms that the family that you have now if you believe this stuff about rebirth, and like I say, I'm agnostic about it, uh, is the same family and set of uh, people that you've had for a thousand or a million years, you know, for birth after birth after birth. And there's a, there's a connection uh, between all of, all of you. So sometimes when I'm having a bit of difficulty with my family, I think, oh, this is something that I this is a group of people that in, in some sense I chose to be around. You know, it might not be exactly a choice like, like going to the grocery store and seeing a pile of avocados and picking the ripest one or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's not exactly that level of choice, but it is a certain, you know, you, you've, been, you've been here before and there's something unfinished and that's why you're here again. Uh, is the idea, and and even if you are like me, an agnostic about it, it I, I find it useful to think of it that way because it gets it gets me out of um, feeling resentful about it or or you know like why me you know and I, <laughs> I I can just go well why me maybe because I this is what I wanted for myself so you know I'm complaining about my own choices which is, which is <laughs> stupid you know. 
Seems like an idea that could be either incredibly comforting, actually, or incredibly frustrating. <laughs> well, it could be, you know. And the thing about karma or the teachings of karma is I really, I'm really adamant that I only apply them to myself. You know, I, I don't, I don't look at other people and go, oh, well, you have that karma. You know, that's, that's not helpful. Um, but uh, when, when applied to myself, I find them useful. That works. That actually makes sense. And that, that could be one better way for, because I know I have a lot of friends who are worried about having to go back to family mm. at the holidays. And that's one of the big sources of stress. And um, yeah. Yeah, it, it always is because you're, you're, um, you're going to have to deal with these people and they've got, you know, they've got this connection to you, but you don't always see eye to eye with them. And uh, they're not exactly your friends, you know, yeah. sometimes. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they are, and that's great if that happens, but, uh, but it doesn't, your family is not necessarily uh, your friends. So, yeah. uh, and you, you can't get rid of them. You know, even if you do, they're still your family and it's, it, it, uh, you know, there's only so far you can go and you carry, right. you carry something of your family with you wherever you go. So often the things you see that are, are frustrating about your family are, are the things that you're frustrated about yourself. Uh, so, you know, there you go. Yeah. You're back yeah. to that again. Well, I know another aspect of that too, is that this is when a lot of people, you know, loss hits home. And one of your stories that you've told many times and talk about it in the new book too, is um, when you lost your mother. Yeah. And I have, this is my first Christmas. My dad died right after Christmas last year. Huh. And so this will be my first Christmas without him. But actually I did think about your story um, at times when I've worried about, you know, what's going to, what are things going to bring up and, and what are all going back through all those traditions again without him there. Yeah. Um, but the way you've talked about, um, you know, dealing with your mother's death and, and I wouldn't say avoiding questions or avoiding, you know, extreme senses of loss, but just feeling like it's okay to feel that way. Mm. And that it's, it's a natural part of thing. That's often the sense that I get from the way you talk about it. So would you mind maybe saying mm. a little bit about, about that? Yeah. Let's see what I can say. I, it, it's, it's funny you bring this up cause I hadn't really uh, associated it with it, but my, my mom died in Jeez, I used to remember the date. It was like the the first week or two of January of two thousand seven. So it was it was right after Christmas, and the last time I'd seen her was when I went to visit my dad and mom for for Christmas, and she was in pretty bad shape by by that time. Yeah, she was uh, she recognized me and and responded to me, but she couldn't talk anymore, and it was mm -hmm. uh, she couldn't really move on her own anymore. She had a, a lingering. Uh, disease that was uh, that was pretty bad and had gone on for years so um it was a it was a difficult situation but then again i'd, I'd had this this practice that i've been doing for years and one of the things about zen practice is you're not you're not trying to make anything happen and i think this is the the real beauty of it in most uh, practices in most sort of meditation practices you're attempting to make some sort of a change, you know, you're, you're trying to become mindful or trying to have an enlightenment experience or, or trying to, I don't know, have inner peace or calm or, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, probably a million different things that people are attempting to do with their meditation. And in the Zen form of meditation, we always tell people, or I was always told when I started out, don't, don't try, don't try to do anything. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, 
that when you are in, uh, especially in a session, which is a long form thing where you do several days of meditation together, you know, three days or five days or seven days where you're just doing almost nothing except meditating all day. You do a little, a bit of other things, but that's the main thing you're doing all day. And uh, during those times, a lot of stuff comes up because the mind starts to, it's, it's weird because it, it, your mind starts to act a little bit like it's a, another person and it's, it's this sort of uncontrolled thing you're, you're having to deal with as you're sitting there. And what it likes to do is, is sometimes behave like a, a little kid who's trying to get your attention. So <laughs> it'll, it'll just bring up um, things you, you hadn't thought of in years and, and uh, things that maybe you had never brought into consciousness you know you start to to show up in your mind and you're instructed to just sit there and do nothing about it except stay still while it happens which is real difficult because some of the stuff that'll come up can be quite uh, agitating uh, and um, and and just and just seeing that come up again and again and again and just going okay well I'm just going to sit still with that it it has the effect of when you go out into the world and you're no longer sitting on a cushion in a protected space of a temple and you know and, and the quiet and all that when those same sorts of things come up you've had the experience of just sitting with them and just letting them be and so when you know when grief and trauma and anger and all the other things that come up around the loss uh, happen, you, you've got you've got a, a bit of uh, experience with uh, with how to deal with that. You know, with the, how to deal with the things your mind throws up at you during those times, and that's you know that's really useful. That was useful when my when my mom passed away. There was this uh, bizarre sort of it, it was. It, it, it would have been fodder for like a black comedy. They they lost her body. It was my my dad. Oh my yeah, my dad had. Uh, I wasn't there when she died, but my dad called me up and I came there. I think the next day or something. I flew out because I'd already come back to Los Angeles. My dad lived in the Dallas suburbs at the time, and uh, so I you know I got the first flight I could back there, and. Um, and he'd already, you know, he'd already had her taken away, but uh, but he was in such a, a state that uh, that he didn't know what happened, and I had to make all kinds of phone calls to try to figure out where where they'd taken her because we wanted to have a cremation, and 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 nobody knew where where she was, and 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 what was worse is nobody would even admit that they didn't know. They, you know, it's one of these things where they try to give you all these <laughs> excuses, and it sounded like you know the the Monty Python routine with the parrot, you know, or something. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not the parrot routine, but you know, they're just making all these bizarre excuses mm -hmm. in order to avoid saying, "Yeah, we don't know where she is right now." <laughs> you know, um, finally, after like three days, uh, we located her, and they they sent her body back, and then we did the cremation, and, and it was fine, but. You know, my dad was in no state to handle this, and I wasn't really either. But but I'm just kind of going, well, this is another thing. You know, this is another thing that's coming up that I don't enjoy, but but I know how to how to be still and push forward. You know, and yeah. so I just kept making all these calls and 
not losing my temper even though I wanted to. And uh, yeah, it, so it was useful. It, it had some practical use, all this uh, sitting and staring at walls I'd done for 30-odd years. <laughs> and I get that too. One thing I, I was talking to a friend um, who you know, gets really depressed and down but also really anxious around this time of year and the thing he was telling me about was how all the christmas decorations and the songs and everything just have so many associations from his childhood that that really get to him and we were kind of talking about um yeah about how to like you talk about letting ideas pass and there's a moment in your book where you talk about um there's sort of two i guess mental phenomena i guess that happen when you're thinking and one is that you just have the thoughts and they just kind of bubble up and the other is that you focus on the thoughts yeah and i remember telling him about that and i was like well you're certainly you know all those associations are going to be there but it seems like if if there's some way just to let them happen and pass that may be better and we even talked about you know just look at the lights you know if there's christmas lights everywhere just try to focus on yeah. you know just what's in front of you yeah that and, sounds like good advice it's, it's sort of easier said than done because oh yeah know, oh takes, absolutely it takes practice and it's it's a kind of a skill almost although you know zen people are really reluctant to talk about it in terms of of that you know but it is a kind of skill that that one develops over time but yeah yeah i would say that that would be the sort of advice i'd be inclined to give you know you just you just kind of um look at the lights as lights you know look at the look at the color of the lights and the things and and try to see the the beauty of it for what it is and you know the associations are there but but they you know if you work with this stuff for a while it stops having much of a hold you know it just sort mm -hmm. of it's just sort of there you know so so the the trigger comes up but the trigger doesn't really doesn't really mean anything it's just it's just there's a trigger you know there's something i there's something i'm upset about <laughs> you yeah. know and you just go okay that's something i'm upset about what else is going on? You know? <laughs> well, I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about the new book, which I did get to read. Okay. I was actually thinking that your your next one was going to be more um, Dogen. Yeah. And I was just curious why you decided to do one like this when it seemed like you were in the middle of your, your big Dogen project, which I can explain to other people. Dogen was a 13th century Zen writer, probably the first Zen writer, but a lot of his philosophical writings are notoriously difficult to understand, much less translate. But Brad's done a two-volume transliteration, I guess you could say, of some of the most important parts and just the ones that he wanted to translate to make them available for a modern audience. They have some great ways of phrasing things and also come with a whole lot of commentary. Well, the Dogen project was something that, uh, I mean, it came out of uh, the a little bit of desperation, you know, I, I, that, that was three, two books ago, three books ago now, when I, I just decided to do this deep dive into the, the philosophy of, of Dogen, who's the guy that founded the, certain, the, the particular sect of Zen that I practice in. And I think he's one of the greatest philosophers ever and, and very practical. You know, it, it, a lot of times he's presented in, in a sort of abstract form and people go, well, I don't want to deal with that. But I, but I think <laughs> that's, that's really the, the, you know, the problem of trans translating something from a, a, a foreign, an ancient foreign language, not just a foreign language, but a really old version of Japanese. Um, 
so of course the only people who can do that are scholars and and they're going to have their their particular mindset and they they'll probably miss the practicality of of what's being uh, what the guy was writing you know in in because they're just so lost in the language and stuff but but anyway I did two books of that and it just seemed like I was going out to I I do these tours of Europe every year and it seemed like when I was talking about that Dogen stuff I would get done with uh, with finishing a, a talk about Dogen and do a Q&A and the you know sometimes the Q&A would would turn into you know who was Buddha you know and uh, <laughs> and I realized oh yeah the 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 most of the the audiences I'm talking to they you know they're a lot of these people are at square one and 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 I wanted to kind of speak to that a little bit because I'd done that in my first uh, first two books, and uh, and I wanted to get back to that, and and I had pitched my publishers on this idea of doing a book called Zen One Hundred and One. But mm-hmm. as I was writing Zen One Hundred and One, I was just getting bored out of my skull and going, "Oh, I don't <laughs> want to do the the gosh, you know, the Four Noble Truths again, and you know, this very basic <laughs> Buddhist stuff." Um, and and looking for inspiration, I, I keep a diary when I travel. So I, I've gone to Europe every year since 2009, and, and I usually go for a month or sometimes two. I think I was there three months one year. And and traveling around and, and doing these lectures and, and uh, holding retreats and things like that. And one of the years, 2014, uh, two friends of mine back home who were both people that were close to me in both parts, you know, intimate parts of the punk rock thing that I'd been into in the, in the early eighties, uh, died. Uh, they, they had cancer and, and they, they died, uh, during that tour. And I, uh, and, and then another, uh, the brother of another close friend of mine. And I knew, I knew her brother, but I knew her better than her brother, but he also passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly, uh, while I was on tour. So all this stuff was happening. And as I was, um, traveling around, I wrote about this in my diary. When one of the friends, uh, when I got the news that he died, I wrote this, this entry in my diary, which on reflection looked like almost a letter to him you know, like in the great beyond, you know, all the things I wanted to say to him. And, uh, and I looked through these diaries for inspiration and I came across that and I, and I realized that I'd said in that, in that diary entry, you know, a lot of things about how I wish I could have shared this practice with you. And, you know, I'd known this guy for 30 some years. I'd known him since I was 15 and, um, and we'd never talked about this stuff, even when he was dying, you know, I went up and visited him and, and Mm -hmm. uh, two different times and spent about a week with him. And, uh, and we just never really got into any sort of philosophical discussion. And even though I'd been studying, you know, the the so-called great matter of life and death, as they call it in the Zen tradition, (laughs) uh, I, I hadn't, I hadn't talked to, to this close friend of mine about it because it just never, there wasn't, one of the things I always tell when I tell this story is if, if I am dying of cancer or anything else, the last thing I would want is somebody I knew for a long time coming in and trying to sell me their religion at, at the last minute, you know, trying to convert <laughs> me, you know, trying to have a deathbed conversion. You know, I just think that's a, a, a dick move. And, and I didn't want to, 
want to do that to a close friend. So I just thought if he brings it up, I'll, I'll definitely go there with him. But if he doesn't bring it up, I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to push this stuff on him. I'm just there to be his friend, you know, and, and to be some comfort of him to him while he's, uh, while he's having this very difficult time. Uh, so it didn't come up. And, and I kind of wished there had been a way to talk about it. And the book is, is based on that. And it, it's, it's a series of letters instead of, you know, and I take off from that first one, uh, sort of, I just only slightly rewrote it. It's really, really close to what was the first chapter of the book is really close to what's in my diary, which I'm looking at right now, but you can't see it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting in, in front of the spot where I keep the diaries. And um, it, it's really close. It's almost verbatim what I wrote to him that day in this pizza shop in Hamburg, Germany. And, uh, and then I just took off from that and, and wrote it. It's, it's semi-fictional. That, that is to say that, that pretty much every, well, I would say not just pretty much, every event that I describe happening on a tour of Europe happened. You know, yeah. uh, I did really get, uh, have to get a spinal tap, you know, at one point in, in one of my, <laughs> during one of my tours. And, you know, I really did get, uh, in, end up in a, a cult compound, you know, because I'd signed up for a, uh, to do a lecture with these people without really checking them out uh, thoroughly. Yeah. And I realized when I got there, Oh, this is a religious cult, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm, and I'm, I'm here and it's, it's miles away from anything. And, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if they were going to sacrifice me to the goat <laughs> God at the end or any, or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, so all that really did happen. But uh, but I, I turned that into into a series of letters which are written, you know, ostensibly from these places that I'm I'm traveling around in, and uh, I'm really I, one does not like to praise one's own work, but I feel like this one came out really well, and uh, and uh, and so I'm kind of happy. Sometimes I'm a little reluctant to promote my own stuff, but now I'm going. This one's this one's actually pretty good, even if I even if I do have to be the one to say it. So I'm kind of happy with it. I was even going to say before you set that context up about wanting to do a Zen 101. I was going to say of everything you've written, this seems like the one I would give to someone if they were interested in Zen. Well, um, thanks. I mean, that's the most approachable and um, sort of yeah, it gets its way into the concepts without dumbing them down, but in a really straightforward way. So I used to think that hardcore Zen would be good for that just because you're, you're sort of laying out the ideas in that one. But I feel like this one does an even better, ever, even better job. Yeah. Hardcore Zen was, was sort of my, my first attempt. And, and there are a lot of similarities between the two. And in, in fact, hardcore Zen was when I wrote that book, I, I didn't, I, I'd been trying to be a novelist for, for years and I was working for this film and television production company in Japan and I was writing scripts for them, none of which ever got produced, although bits and pieces of my scripts ended up uncredited in some of their productions, which, mm -hmm. which is something that's a, a slight annoyance to me even now, <laughs> but, uh, but, but none of the scripts themselves ever got in and I never got, I never got credit for any of the work that I, that I did for them in that area. But, um, so, so that's what I was trying to do. And then I kind of had run dry of, of science fiction ideas. And I wrote this book about Zen, but it, I didn't, 
I had, I'd already sent, I'd already had the experience of sending books to publishers and getting them rejected. And I looked at this thing and I'm going, well, there's no way anybody's going to publish this. But I, I originally, so, so I was writing it with the intention that I would give it to my nephew, who was then 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And so everything was written with him in mind. You know, yeah. is this something that Ben could understand? Uh, and and that that was the case throughout even the editing process and everything. It's sort of so so in a way it's it's very similar in that it was written to one specific person, uh, just like letters to a dead friend about Zen is written to one specific person. And I I feel like I did a better job of it, you know, as I'm I've done it more and I'm older and I've done you know I've got more experience yeah. behind me. So I think this is actually a better version of hardcore Zen in some ways. Yeah. And if, if there is anyone listening who is interested in Zen, I think this is definitely a great place to start. So I'll give that plug for you. Well, thanks. <laughs> I have to say for myself though, I know you, you said that you're, you would talk to people about the Dogen and then nobody wanted to get into the weeds with you, but that's actually some of the most fun I've had. The stuff that you did there where, you know, talking about comparisons of the translations mm-hmm. and getting down to individual words, to me, that's fascinating. It, that's it is, like it's some fascinating. Of the most to, fun stuff. It's fascinating yeah. to me, too, you know, cause, and I really enjoyed doing that. And I, and I really, really tried to, what I tried to do is sort of the scholarly book that is readable for non scholars, because I was never, I was never a scholar of, of religion or anything like that. But you know, it's sort of, I'd lived in Japan and, and I learned Japanese and I realized I now had a, a, an interesting skill, which is that I had practiced Dogen's style of meditation for a long time and I could read what he wrote about it, you know, in, mm-hmm. in its original language, which not a lot of people can do. Even a lot of practitioners sure. over here uh, in, in the States and, and in Europe too, uh, they 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 only know Dogen from translation, mm-hmm. and and when you can actually go into it and and look at these translations and then look at the original and go, okay, well this is this because people would ask me, um, now you're going to get me to nerd out uh, if, if you, you, you open the floodgates, but but people would ask me like they they'd say, well what did Dogen really say? And I go, well, what he really said, and then I just <laughs> throw some 800-year-old Japanese at them because, <laughs> because I think that's important because they, they, you know, people sort of imagine that, that, that he spoke English or, you know, or something like sure. that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's the way people go, well, the Bible says, and you go, well, no, the Bible, you know, the, Bible's, the, the version of the Bible that you have says that, but that's not what the, the original authors wrote. They wrote in Greek, you know, and they, they used a, a whole different vocabulary and a different set of uh, of, of influences and, and references and things like that. So, uh, so getting into that and, and showing what it, what it said and uh, was, was real interesting to me, but I also tried to do it in such a way that it's, it's easy, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not, it's, it doesn't really, I don't, I hope it doesn't really tax your brain that much to, to look at it the way I present it. Yeah, it was, re- it was really interesting to do. And, and people often ask me if I'm going to do another one. And I, and I don't know. I mean, in practical terms, the first one, uh, Don't Be a Jerk, sold pretty well. But the the follow-up to it, uh, uh, it came from Beyond Zen, didn't sell as well. You know, mm-hmm. and so, and, and there's a certain, uh, my publishers told me about this certain kind of 
I don't know if they call it a law or whatever it's, but it's just, it's just the, the sequels never do as well as the original. Mm. And, and so each, each successive sequel sells fewer copies, you know? So I thought that by the time I got to the end of Dogen, I'd be like, yeah, there's like 12 people buying the book. (laughs) But no, the other thing I really appreciated about it was when I first started to get into a lot of the stuff, I remember when I was 22, one twenty-two, reading two different versions of the Tao Te Ching mm-hmm. and realizing how vastly different they were. Oh yeah, and that was sort of the thing. And I was in my, you know, personal block since I speak no Eastern language and and you know, know very little about the culture. It made me realize that even though I was fascinated by these other ways of thinking and philosophies that there was just this massive gap between me and what was actually written. And I've always felt that, you know, so it's always been one of those things where is what I'm understanding really what was being talked about, or am I just kind of making something up based on how I think I understand how Mm -hmm. this person translated things. Um, And that was always a little frustrating. So it was really kind of fun. I think with your books, that was one of the few times where I feel like I've gotten close to a little bit more of the original text of, of some of those things. It's always hard to know, you know, with with these things, you know, there because I, I think as a writer myself, sometimes what I the words I have at my disposal to express whatever I want to express are inadequate. So mm-hmm. projecting that back in time, I have to imagine that Dogen probably felt that the the medieval Japanese that he was, you know, had to use to express what he wanted to express probably wasn't adequate to him either mm-hmm. and there might have been there might be areas here and there in the translations which if you know if you could dig him up and teach him english and have him read them <laughs> he might he might think the english translations were closer to what he wanted to say we don't we don't really know uh, so um so you, so you just never know so i you know i i don't um i think there, there's this tradition in Buddhism that that it's it's supposed to be an an oral tradition or a person to person tradition anyway. So what what you're trying to transmit is something that the the words are just a kind of a shadow of it, but what is what you're trying to transmit has to be transmitted from one human being to another. And there's a you know a myth, I suppose you would call it, that that we have an unbroken translate or an unbroken transmission. Uh, all the way from Buddha's time to ours, and I don't know how much I I really believe that, but but there does seem to be something that has been carried forward from Buddha's time to ours in the in the people uh, who who do the practice. You know, th- this is why in in Zen Buddhism, especially in in most forms of Buddhism, uh, the meditation practice is is. Um, highly emphasized. Mm-hmm. There, there are some forms of Buddhism where hardly anybody meditates, but they still have a great reverence for the meditation tradition, even in those forms. And in the Zen tradition, everybody meditates. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of what differentiates Zen in a lot of ways from, from other forms of Buddhism is that, is that uh, we're the sect that says, yeah, everybody should meditate. It doesn't matter if you're uh, one of the special people or not, you should, you should do it too. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> So, so you, we're trying to carry on the experiential part of of what the Buddha uh, taught, and not just the words that are used to describe it. 
Well, maybe one last thing just to actually get back to what my podcast is supposed okay. to be. <laughs> but um, I know I'm I'm not Christian, but I still have a whole lot of fun with Christmas. And I know a lot of people will talk to me about feeling odd for, you know, when they really think about it or that if they're not Christian. Um, do you celebrate Christmas? Do you know other Buddhists who celebrate Christmas? Yeah, I think most of the Buddhists I know celebrate Christmas because they're either Japanese or they're they're uh, Westerners. So uh, you know, the, like I said earlier, the Japanese love Christmas, so mm-hmm. so they they do it. Uh, Nishijima Roshi wasn't a big my, that's my teacher. He wasn't a big Christmas guy, but he wasn't a big holiday guy in general. But but mm-hmm. all the the other people I knew around him would do something for Christmas. And I do. I love Christmas. You know, I, I'm 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 slightly embarrassed by the fact that I I'm one of the few people that I know who likes Christmas music. You know, I love those songs, and I'll even listen to them <laughs> when it's not Christmas because I just like I like the yeah. tunes. CD last year that was uh, that was um, uh, these Christmas records that had been done by people who did these. I think they was called song poem is what they usually call mm-hmm. it. And they had these ads in the backs of yeah. uh, comic books and things. You know, send in your poem and we'll set it to music. And uh, there's a, there's collections of these, and I have the the Christmas themed one is hilarious. You know, just some of the things these people come up with. Um, so you know, I don't I don't do up I, I don't do a big thing for Christmas. My yeah. my uh, my girlfriend is. Uh, her parents are, are Mexican. She was born here, but both her parents are, are immigrants from Mexico. So she has all these, uh, her family has all these Mexican Christmas traditions, which I find uh, really fascinating. And I, I love, uh, you know, getting involved in this because I'm like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> you know, the way yeah. you guys do it is so, <laughs> different from what I'm used to. But it's, yeah. it's you know, it's another flavor of, of, of Christmas. So that's, that's always a lot of fun. So, yeah, I like it. You know, I like Christmas. Yeah. Well, Brad, thank you so much for talking. I appreciate your time and, and appreciate, you know, learning about the new book. And I have to say Merry Christmas then, too. Yeah, Merry Christmas <laughs> to you, too. And, and to all a good night. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. To body, mind, sense, faculties are then formed in kind, aware, aware, aware. Again, Brad Warner's new book is Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, and it's a great introduction to some Zen ideas. His book, Hardcore Zen, is the one that kind of got him out there as a name in Zen circles, and it's really good, too. Actually, anything he wrote is good and worth looking up. Thanks, as always, for listening. Follow me on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram for all the weird vintage postcards you can handle, although things will taper down a bit now until the fall. I'll still post plenty for the big holidays, but nothing like the September to January blitzes. I'm always happy to get tips and donations at ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, ko-fi.com slash weirdchristmas, where you can donate the price of a cup of coffee. They say it's $3, so that's either a super expensive coffee at Denny's or one tiny one at Starbucks. Also check out the Patreon Also check out the Patreon page if you're interested in year-round podcasts from me about Christmas and other holidays, as well as some other goodies throughout the year. Still one more grab bag episode to get out, or maybe I'll do them as little mini episodes. Either way, I did these out of order than what I said on the last show, so my bad. But it's a podcast. Nobody pays attention. Anyway, until next time, don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. Attachment gives rise to gestation. Then comes birth and all.